Our passage this morning is from Psalm 77, and I invite you to stand for the reading of our passage. Psalm 77, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I invite you to keep those, uh, your bulletins open to that passage as we're going to be looking through it. Just quickly a note about this series that we're beginning. You might notice the title, The Songs of Jesus. It's a little disguised in our Spotify mock-up here, but hopefully you can notice it. Um, part of the reason for that name is we're going to be kind of trying to dovetailing the Psalms that we are choosing with a devotional written by Tim Keller where he works through the Psalms in the course of a year and looks, you know, maybe a few Psalms each week part of it each day, give some comment on it, leads with a prayer. And part of the reason we wanted to do this is to encourage you, if you're looking for some way of kind of anchoring, you know, the summer can get chaotic, you can kind of lose rhythms. And so if you're looking for something to kind of continue to guide you in God's word and a time of prayer, I encourage you to maybe pick up that book. It's just The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller and use that as your devotional time in the morning if you don't already have something. And you'll know that the Sunday that follows the week that you're looking at those passages, we'll be looking at one of those passages together. So that's part of the reason that we're calling this The Songs of Jesus. Not the only reason, but just to kind of give you a bit of a clue to the method behind our madness. Um, I'm really excited to look at this passage with you, uh, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you are, you are with us, and you are a God who 
enables us to come to you with all sorts of different emotions. We are not just called to kind of put on a smile if we're in your presence, but you invite us when we mourn to mourn to you. And so with this song of lament that we have before us, we pray that you would teach us how to deal with our grief and our depression, that you would lead us to yourself that we might see you more clearly. Please help me to speak faithfully to your word. Help us to hear you, that we might be made more like Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen. Well, let me ask you, what do you do when your faith feels too weak to deal with the darkness that you find in your soul. I wonder if you've ever felt that way, where your heart is just so weighed down by a joylessness, an energylessness, and none of the things that you think are supposed to help do, no matter how much you pray or think about the comforts that Christianity offers to you, Even when you're at church, it just feels irrelevant. What do you do when your faith feels too weak to deal with the darkness that's in your soul? What do you do when you find yourself facing spiritual depression? I just said a moment ago that we are beginning a series on the songs of Jesus because the Psalms were the songs that Jesus himself sang. And the thing about songs is they are the language of emotion. I don't know if you've thought about that, but the Bible addresses the whole person. Some of the Bible really focuses on our thoughts, like Romans really gives us attention to how we should be thinking. Some of the Bible is more focused on our actions, like Proverbs, very practical. But the Psalms is meant to educate our heart and teach us what to do with those powerful feelings that are a key part of what it means to be human. And this psalm is about facing spiritual depression. We notice that from the outset. In verse 2, Asaph, and by the way, Asaph was just the music director when David was alive. He was like the Brent Stutzman of that day. So Asaph is the one who wrote this song. And in verse 2, Asaph says that he is in a day of trouble. Now that day of trouble we don't know what is going on outside of his life because that's not really what is troubling him. As we see his description, we realize that what is troubling him is that he is in a time of intense emotional despair. So he speaks about being so overwhelmed that he cries out aloud. It just comes from out, from out of him. And then at nighttime, it says he is constantly stretching his hand upward to God without wearying. He's just praying and praying and praying, and it doesn't feel like anything is getting any better. Verse 4, he says that his eyes, that you... You, God, keep my eyelids open. He has insomnia, and he doesn't know why God isn't making anything better. His whole life, day and night, is filled with anxiety. And that anxiety is not leading him to some course of action, of pursuit. It it leads him to hopelessness, where he doesn't have anything that he knows to do. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. And just like praying doesn't seem like it's able to help, so, so truth of God doesn't seem to help him. He says, when I remember God, 
I just moan. He, his agony is increased as he thinks about God. As he meditates, he faints. Do you, do you know that feeling of just energylessness, where you find yourself not wanting to do anything? See, what's being described here, in, in past days sometimes it's referred to as the dark night of the soul, but some more recent pastors has described spiritual depression when when the heart is so weighed down that the comfort that we should be able to find in the gospel and the promises of God, the reality of that gives us hope in Christianity seems completely unable to lift us out of it when our faith feels too weak to deal with the darkness inside of our soul. And this isn't the only psalm that, that speaks about this. In fact, if you study the Psalms, you see this theme returned to again and again. David says in Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at Psalm 88, where it speaks of how you, O God, have brought me to the pit. In Psalm 102, it says, I have lost the ability to eat. Again and again, we hear this description of a heart that is so deeply weighed down that it refuses to be comforted. And that indicates something for us that's important. We, we know that part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are given joy. But these songs that we are given indicate that we also can expect to face sadness. And that also is part of the Christian life. Now, each of us will face things differently. Some of us, our temperament, of course, is a little bit more flat. We're never too far up, but never too far down. But others of us, I guess, know, my suspicion is know exactly what this psalm is referring to because we have experienced it firsthand. In fact, maybe we even are facing it right now. We know what it's like to be up at night with our mind racing with anxiety and we keep on praying the same things and it just doesn't seem to give us peace. We we know what it's like to feel like we should be feeling more happy and more joyful because we know things are, are better than they feel, but we can't move ourselves. We know what it's like to feel completely disconnected from church when we come. We know what it is to experience spiritual depression, and we don't know what to do about it. I mean, there can be different causes that bring us to this point. Sometimes, frankly, we are brought to this point purely for physical reasons, because, of course, we are body and soul united, and so sometimes we have just so exhausted ourselves. Or sometimes, as we've come to understand in the last few decades, our, our brain chemistry is so just off that physically it brings us to the point of lowness, which means, of course, part of the solution is rest or, or even medicine. But oftentimes that still is not enough to deal with the fight that we're experiencing for joy. Sometimes we're brought to this place because of deep grief, someone we love, we've lost, and we've gotten past that initial shock and the initial busyness, and now we're staring down trying to imagine how we can possibly live life without that person. Some of us experience this, and it's just kind of snuck up on us, and we don't know exactly why. We, we find ourselves now looking at life and feeling just dismayed and disillusioned and wondering what it is we're missing. Many of us know this spiritual depression that's being described. And whatever the cause is, we all who are in it ask the same question, what do I do 
How can I fight? What is the right way for me to respond to this time? And that's, that's what Asaph here gives us, not as some expert removed, but as someone who is in there it with us. If you are a, a West Wing fan like I am, you might remember this one story that Leo McGarry, who's one of the main characters, tells to a friend who's in need. He says, this guy's walking down a street and he falls in a hole and the walls are so steep that he can't get out. Doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey, can you help me out? So the doctor writes a prescription and throws it down the hole. And then he moves on. A priest walks by and again, hey, can you get me out of here? And the priest writes a prayer and he throws it down the hole and then he moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. And our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. See, that's what this psalm is for us. Asaph has been down the hole, and he knows the way out. And the way out that we're going to see is he moves in this psalm in a really important transition. He moves from having the feelings of the moment so overpowering him that it colors the way he views the eternal God. So by the time we get to the end of the psalm, his understanding of the eternal God changes the way that he feels about the moment. That's, that's, that's the important transition from, from letting what he experiences right now shaping how he views God to letting who God is and the reality of who God is shape how he feels right now. I mean, one of the ways we see this transition is how it changes in pronouns. I don't know if you noticed this when it was being read. But in the first 10 verses, again and again, God is spoken of in the third person. as though, Like one time it's, he's spoken directly to, but again and again he's kind of in the distance as someone the person thinks of but isn't connected to. But then notice what you see beginning in verse 11. There's a change. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Do you see that change now? At some point in the psalm, he's moved from God and the side and the distance that somebody thinks about to someone he's thinking near, someone he is talking to. And that shapes him, where now God is reworking his emotions rather than his feelings reworking his understanding of God. So that's the transition, but the question that we need to ask is how? How does Asaph find his way out of the hole? And I want us to notice a couple of things that Asaph doesn't do, and a couple of things that Asaph does do in working his way out of this spiritual depression. First, one thing he doesn't do is avoid. Now, when we, many of us, face sadness, we see it as a sign of weakness. It's probably especially common amongst males, but I know it can be common amongst everyone. And so we try to pretend it isn't there. We power through it by just getting lost in work. Or, or we try to kind of numb ourselves to it by escaping through entertainment or, or through alcohol. Or we just fake it until we make it. We believe that if we just act happy, somehow we will. And if it's a, if it's a minor thing, then maybe that works. But if it's something that really is troubling us, all we're doing is denying reality. And we can never outrun reality. Notice that's not what Asaph does. Asaph deals with this head on. 
He is brutally honest. He's not avoiding it. Every verse in a different way is saying, I hurt. And that's where dealing with this begins. It's by not avoiding it. What's more, notice that Asaph doesn't give up. That's the, oftentimes the second thing that we do. Once we've realized that we can't fake it until we make it, we realize that we are just stuck in unhappiness. We can then kind of have this resignedness, this acceptance and almost this cynicism. Life sucks until you die. It's just not going to get any better. I'm, it's, this is the way I'm going to feel. But that's not Asaph. Asaph fights. You know, John Calvin commented on how we have a tendency when we are, he was talking about the psalm, when we are facing hardship, to try something with God, and then when it doesn't immediately work, just to give up. He, he writes, the reason why so many attempts at remembering the grace of God fails in edifying our faith is that as soon as we've begun to make God's grace the subject of our consideration, our inconstancy draws us away to something else. And thus, at the very outset, our minds soon lose sight of it. Do you understand what he's saying? That we start, we we know that we're supposed to pray, we go to the Bible, and we read something, and it just seems useless to us, and then we just give up. And what we're doing is we're being like the person who's been prescribed anti-anxiety medication, and after taking two pills, knowing that it doesn't make any difference, we stop taking it. The thing is, it takes time. God's work in us takes time. And so we can't give up. And Asaph doesn't give up. I mean, he says, day and night, I'm holding out my hand without tiring, and yet he persists, even though prayer seems to make no difference, even though thinking about God seems to make no difference, yet he knows that he's got nowhere else to go. And he knows that he should expect joy from God. You know, these prayers of laments that we have in the Psalms, they're not prayers of faithlessness. They're prayers of faith because they're prayers of expectation. They expect God to be good and they're confused that he's not, but they're not yet giving up. He doesn't give up. And when we're in moments of spiritual depression, we are called not to avoid and not to give up, but to keep at it, to keep in prayer, to keep turning to God, waiting on him. So those are two things he doesn't do. He doesn't avoid, he doesn't give up. But what does he do? Well, one thing he does is he asks real questions. You know, as he is in this time of turmoil, eventually it brings him to asking questions. And I don't know if you noticed, but these questions are raw. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? He's saying, can I expect God to ever deal with me any differently? Will I ever be happy by God's hand again? Now, these are really the questions that our heart should be asking, I think, or at least they are asking when we're depressed. Sure, we might focus on something more superficial, like will I get a job, or will I feel this way, or is life going to get better? But when we recognize that God is the one who holds us in our hands, then our hearts realize we're actually dealing with God. And what we're really asking is, can I trust God? Is God truly going to be good to me? And Asaph is honest about that. In fact, he goes 
even deeper because he realizes that when he's asking questions about what God will do, he's actually asking questions about who God is. And so he says, are God's promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now just think of what he's asking. He is basically asking, is God a promise breaker? When God said he was compassionate, was he lying? You know, if we said those questions out loud, I think we would be afraid on that moment that we'd be hit by lightning because they sound so blasphemous. But the reality is, whether we ever acknowledge them with our mouth or not, that is what our hearts are asking when we're in these moments of anxiety and depression. Is God really going to be good, even though he said he's going to be good? And pretending that they're not there doesn't do us any good. Our heart has already asked it. What we need to do is actually name them. Because when we actually name these questions before God, we are taking a step in faith and inviting God to answer the questions that are agonizing us. If we don't mention those questions, if we just deal with the superficial, we never deal with the actual cause behind our agony. If you right now are finding yourself in this point where you don't know what way is up and what way is down and you are just brought low, I would encourage you to try to get to the very root questions. What questions is your heart asking about God? Are you saying, God, are you there? God, can I really trust you? God, do you really love me and do you really know what you are doing? Ask those questions because to ask them is to invite God to answer them. It is a step in faith. So, so we see Asaph asking real questions. But then also, and this is perhaps the most decisive thing he does, we see Asaph also remembering God's deeds. That's the turning point. I don't know. I've I, I pointed out before that, you know, the first 10 verses God has spoken of in the third verse, third person, and then suddenly in verse 11 it changes, so it's the first person. And, and the beginning of that in verse 11 is, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. This is the change that moves him from, from just having emotions be the loudest thing in his life to God being more loud in his heart and his mind. He remembers the deeds of the Lord because the deeds of God are the anchors. They are like stakes that drive the reality of God into our soul or drive more accurately our soul into the reality of God. When I was a kid growing up, our family did a fair amount of camping. Um, and I always had a job. Whenever the tent was being set up, I was the guy who was supposed to drive the 18-inch like, plastic stakes, find the loops on the tent, and drive the stakes down into to each one of them. There's about eight in our tent. And uh, I was never quite sure why it was that important, because I'd seen this tent set up before without the stakes. Until one night we came home from a trip back to our tent, and the tent was collapsed. The storm had just hit it hard, and the structure kind of folded in, but it was still in place. 
because the things that anchored it to the ground were still holding it firm. The deeds of God are the stakes that can hold us in place to the reality of who God is. And even though there might be times that we feel like we have collapsed, we are not moved if we keep returning back to God's deeds. If you right now feel like you are in spiritual freefall and you can't figure out where your footing is and nothing seems stable, find an action that God has done. Go to something that God has done, whether it's creation, whether it's some other event, and just stay there in your mind and in your heart as it anchors you back to who God truly is. That's what Asaph does. Asaph returns to the great moment of redemption in the Old Testament, when God brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And what he remembers specifically about that is the kind of climactic point where, where they're brought through the Red Sea. You know this story, right? You've got the Egyptians in the background. You've got this big sea in front. And then God divides the waves and brings God's people through. And he redeems his people. And Asaph just stays there for a while. And he thinks about what it means. He imagines that moment. And as he does, truths come back to him about who God is. He remembers that God redeemed his people. That even though things seemed desperate, God was there and God was faithful and God worked. And he needed to know that. We need to know that. But I'm struck by a second thing that he also notices as he returns to this event. He begins to imagine what it must have been like for God's people in that time as the sea is being divided and they are being redeemed. And he realizes that for God's people, redemption in that moment must have been absolutely terrifying. The wind is blowing the water. The water is, is rushing away. There likely were storms and thunder and the earth was shaking. And God couldn't even be visibly seen. Do you notice his footsteps are in the sea? I mean, verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footsteps were unseen. Think about what he's saying here. He's, he's come to a really important realization. The way of God redeeming his people was a way that in that moment felt terrifying and chaotic. And God couldn't even be visibly seen. His footsteps were in the sea. Yet in the moment where things seemed most desperate and scary was the moment that God was most truly redeeming them and showing them his love. Do you see why that would be significant for him in this moment? One of the great terrors that we face when we are brought low is we feel like this depression is a sign that God has left us. The chaos and the storm in our souls shows that God no longer is with us, taking care of us, no longer redeeming us. But what he realizes in this moment is in those very moments where we feel the greatest amount of chaos, those aren't signs that God is absent. They very well may be signs that God is especially present. Because God's way is through the sea. And that's what redemption often looks like. 
You and I know this even more deeply, don't we? Because we have a deed. When I said deeds to go back to of God, we have a deed that is greater than any other. We have the deed of Jesus going to the cross. And when we look at that, we, even as dark as our soul can be, can cling to the truth, yes, I have been redeemed. Yes, I am loved and I am forgiven and God is faithful. But we also can remember what it must have been like on that night because that night too was filled with chaos as one injustice after another was dealing with the Son of God, as, as the sun wouldn't show its face, as the earth in protest trembled when the Son of God was brought through hell, through death, and to life. See, God's way of redeeming is not even just through the sea, it's through death, it's through hell. And we, Jesus tells you, come and follow me. And that is a warning as well as an invitation because following Jesus, he says, take up your cross. He is telling us that when we are following him, yes, there will be times of joy and there is hope beyond us. But there's also going to be times of chaos and suffering and confusion because God's way is through the sea. That doesn't take away, that knowledge doesn't take away our suffering, but it gives us hope, doesn't it? To know, as one writer put it, that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling, loving face. That writer was uh, actually a man by the name of William Cooper. He was a uh, a hymn writer in the 18th century, and in some ways this story is a tragic story because he is someone who suffered with depression all his life. He attempted to commit suicide on a number of different occasions. And yet, even in the midst of his agony, there are moments that God gave him to see the truth, to give him hope, and to help him to keep moving forward. And one of those moments, he wrote a, a hymn that in some ways a reflection upon this very psalm. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. What Cooper could only see by faith in the moments that he's writing now in glory, he sees by sight. And his words encourage us to continue on, to not avoid our sadness, to not give up, to ask the hard questions, and to anchor ourselves in the reality of God's deeds as he leads us through the sea. We come to our time in our service where traditionally we take a moment to confess, and I'd like to kind of direct our time in a slightly different direction, not so much to confess obvious sins, but to confess our doubts, our questions. Perhaps right now you are at a time where you're just feeling God's bounty, and I invite you to use this time of silence just to give thanks and to pray for those who are not. But if you are in a time where you are facing anxiety or sadness or hurt, I invite you 
to ask those honest questions before God and to not give up but to continue to cry out to him and then I will lead us in corporate prayer in just a moment. Would you please join with me in silent prayer? Father, you hear our cries as many of us cry out silently but deeply to you. Lord, we ask that you would again help us to see the reality of who you are. Lord, whatever it is that many of us are facing, the things that cause us to be anxious, the things that cause us to be sad, Lord, you know them. And we know that even if it doesn't feel that way, you care because you have shown the depth of your love through your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would give us footing, that you would reorient us, that you would lead us out of this hole, that we might be able to see you more clearly and praise you truly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are these words of comfort from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Brothers and sisters, God is with us in our time of need and has given us salvation and forgiveness of sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.